Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. To kick off the next chapter of Slow Stories, I'm thrilled to bring you today's incredible episode. It begins with an opening story from Alessandra Angelini via our new segment, Soul Stories. Be sure to add this to your listening queue for later on in the week, and in the meantime, enjoy this special reading from Alessandra. Hello, my name is Alessandra Angelini. I work in community at Crown Affair. I also am a writer and holistic nutritionist. Today, I've chosen to read the poem titled Testimony 1968 by Rita Dove. I've chosen this poem because I'm learning new rhythms and new ways to manage change, and this poem is helping me do that. I'll read it for you now. Who comforts you now that the wheel has broken? No more princes for the poor, loss whittling you thin. Grief is the constant now, hope the last word spoken. In a dance of two elegies, which circles the drain? A token year with its daisies and carbines is where we begin. Who comforts you now? That the wheel has broken is mechanics 101. To keep dreaming when the joke's on you? Well, Crazier legends have been written. Grief is the constant now. Hope, the last word spoken. On a motel balcony, shouted in a hotel kitchen. No kin can make this journey for you. The roots locked in. Who comforts you now that the wheel has broken? The bodies of its makers? Beyond the smoke and ashes, what you hear rising is nothing but the wind. Who comforts you? Now that the wheel has broken, grief is the constant. Hope, the last word spoken. I hope you enjoyed that and I hope it inspires you to find new ways to depend on change and believe in yourself and have hope. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Alessandra for sharing. Again, the poem she mentioned is Testimony 1968 by Rita Dove. Now here's my interview with Stephanie Gandler. Novelist, memoirist, screenwriter, reader, mother, daughter. Stephanie Dandler's title isn't singular, and perhaps that is what makes her such a compelling storyteller. If you've read Stephanie's work, you might already be aware of her gift for writing about the human experience in a way that captures your heart and sometimes breaks it due to her gorgeous prose and knack for capturing so many truths about what it means to exist in the world today. Her breakout novel turned television show Sweet Bitter is the embodiment of this, and although it was a runaway success, Stephanie eventually slowed down and looked inward when she realized that another prominent piece of writing she had been working on needed to be told too. But it wasn't just any story, it was her story, and it recently came to life in her newly debuted memoir, Stray. 
In this interview, Stephanie spoke more about the impetus for writing Stray, how her relationship with Pace has changed, and her thoughts on slow content in our age of digital creativity. She also shared a small excerpt from Stray. With that said, I won't give too much more away. And without further delay, here's my conversation with the incredible Stephanie Danler. I think of myself as a reader before anything else, including writer. And so I am a reader. I feel that I'm an eternal student of of literature and art and um, put here on earth in a way to to take in as much of other people's experiences and my own experience as possible. I'm also a mother. Um, I have a 16-month-old son, and I am due with a daughter. Let's see, when is that? In July, which is feels like it's just around the corner. Um, and I think that I don't really have much identity besides writing, and I didn't for a long time, and that having a family has started to balance me out and keep my feet grounded in um, in a world that doesn't revolve around books or my own thoughts. Yeah. I identify with that too. And obviously I think that stories are the things that ground us both personally and professionally and personally. Um, is your son, like, do you read to him? Oh my God. I mean, that's all I do. His dad, his dad <laughs> does everything for him. I mean, his dad is his primary caretaker and cooks all of his meals and does all of the play. And the only thing, the only thing he thinks I can do is read. So he drags books through the house. I mean, he might interrupt this podcast, actually, with a book in his hand banging on the door. <laughs> and I, it's been such a joy. We There are so many incredible children's books out there. And I tend he tends to enjoy the ones that I also enjoy reading. It's not like I have to read like an Elmo book over and over again. Maybe because I don't have any in the house. I'm sure that day will come. Oh, totally. But I actually think children's books are so beautiful because they just go right to the virtues that we tend to sideline when we get older. And is there a book or a story that you've read to him or just generally for yourself in the last few months um, that's made you slow down or pause and reflect? There are a few, actually. Um, There are a few books about the natural world that really have reconnected me to this sense of wonder of what it meant to me as a child to think about the wild animals of Africa or what it meant to me the wonder with which I thought about farms and fish in streams that had lives and had mothers and had bedtime routines this sort of the way we assume that the natural world behaves like our world or that we are kin with them in some way. Because my son really responds to 
animals. And we have this national parks book that is way above his reading level, but he just loves to see the maps, the map of the United States and loves to see that wolves are in this park in Alaska and rattlesnakes are in this park and there are lynxes in Montana. And I, all of this, I've forgotten. I, or if I, if I ever knew it, I think as adults, our worlds are so myopic and so small and based on logistics and survival and not in daydreaming about what nature looks like in Japan, for example. And so a lot of these books tap into that and um, fill me with a kind of wanderlust, first of all, to go to every single national park, but also a sort of reverence for how intricate our world is. Um, And I hope, yeah, I hope to keep that in him his sort of identification with animals and plants and nature for as long as possible. Yeah. And I think to your point about our adult take on the world as being so narrow, so much of what's being revealed about that now is kind of also rooted in this idea of pain. The world can seem small and painful. And I'm thinking and hoping that once we're on the other side of this, that we can recreate that space to get back to these simpler pleasures and the wonder that used to kind of inspire us um, during a time that was simpler and when we were allowed to think about the things that um, maybe weren't right in front of us. And, you know, speaking of all of this, how has your writing or your relationship with writing changed as we kind of go through this time? I am not writing creatively or um, in a particularly thoughtful, crafted way at the moment. I'm not able to. Um, I happen to have a book coming out and there is so much work associated with a book coming out and there's a lot of writing that goes with that. Um, Oftentimes writers will publish pieces adjacent to their book publication. It's kind of part of the whole publicity parade. And so I'm writing, I have pieces that will be coming out, but they're really, they feel more like assignments. Um, Before this started, I was at the very, very early stages of a novel that I don't feel capable of really thinking about, let alone putting words down on the page. I just, I don't have that kind of attention right now. I think what I'm craving during this quarantine is to check things off of a list, this sort of idea of being useful, um, which is different than productive. I, I want so desperately to be of use to my friends and family and to readers, um, and to my publisher to feel this sort of more traditional sense of purpose. And so there's a lot of writing that's going into that, but, um, I, most writers I know are having a really hard time 
sort of block what doing what you need to do to write, which is to block out the world completely and live inside of your brain and live with your story. Completely understandable given where we're at. And, you know, I think just on the note of your story, I'd love to backtrack a little bit for those who might not be as familiar with your work and your background, um, starting specifically in the era of Sweet Bitter. Yeah, I, um, let's see what happened with Sweet Bitter. It's a long time ago. I was waiting tables and getting ready to sell my first novel, Sweet Bitter, when I was waiting on an editor and who was a regular of mine. And he ended up acquiring that novel for Knopf. It was a novel about being a waitress. Um, it was a novel that I hoped would contribute to the female coming of age genre in a way that felt new and subversive. And it was a novel I hoped would give a an alternative perspective on the restaurant narratives that we normally see, which seemed very male to me, chef-driven, testosterone-driven, this sort of um, adrenaline of the kitchen, which was not the world that I inhabited in restaurants during the 12 years I was in New York City, but also even before that, I'd been working in restaurants since I was 15 years old. And so Sweet Bitter, what happened? It came out and it found readers. Sorry, just on the subject of readers, I quickly want to jump in and say that as a reader of Sweet Bitter myself, that I I truly think it changed my relationship with reading and storytelling. You just have a way of tapping into a story that we all kind of universally share, but it's done in such a beautiful and engaging way. Thank you. a really beautiful thing to hear as a writer. And I am trying, especially right now, to take that in and not just brush it off, um, which it's so much easier to do. Um, So Sweet Bitter came out and I toured with that book for a year. And I said yes to absolutely everything that came my way. I had a sense the entire time of how rare it was to have a debut breakout and how rare it was to find readers. You know, I can't even take credit for it. It really is about timing and luck and the appetite. I think the appetite in that moment, pre-election, believing that Hillary Clinton was going to be our president and then post-election, the sort of um, rebirth of a very strong kind of feminism. I think a lot of that gives young women in particular an appetite for stories that aren't necessarily likable or easy or cathartic. And so I don't know exactly why Sweet Bitter took off the way that it did. I think it probably has very little to do with me um, and more with the culture and where the moment that we were in. But 
the opportunity came up to turn it into a television show and I took it and I decided that if I was going to be involved a little bit, I wanted to learn as much as possible and treat it as if it were a free PhD in filmmaking and screenwriting. I was working with really brilliant producers and executives and showrunners and eventually really brilliant writers and actors. And I was in way over my head, but I left over from my restaurant days, just kept my head down and knew that I could work hard, that I could work long hours and that I could manage crises and emergencies and large groups of people because I did manage restaurants for many years. And so we did two seasons of that and it was an incredible and complex experience, complicated, very different from novel writing and uses a totally different set of muscles and strengths. And we were really happy with what we made overall. I mean, it's so hugely collaborative that I can't, you really truly can't say that one person made it. (laughs) Like someone gets a creator credit and it has so little to do with that person. And that's kind of the beauty I think of film is you're talking about artists, whether they're electricians or actual artists in the art department or architects or actors all coming together and leaving their mark on this story. And so all in all, looking back on it, it was a gorgeous experience, but what it meant was that I didn't write for a long time. I didn't work. I was trying to publish nonfiction. I was still writing. It took me a while to admit that I was writing a memoir, but that is what I was actually doing. And then as soon as we wrapped season two of Sweet Bitter, I gave birth. And then four months later, I decided I was going to write give myself a deadline for stray and I wrote it in nine weeks while my son was five months old and now we're here. Wow. It's amazing hearing all of that said out loud and you know, it's just such an incredible story. And I think a lot of what you were talking about is a really nice segue into the heart of what I'm trying to get to with slow stories, because it seems that during that time, the pace at which you were operating on just about every level was just constant. And now I think we're all collectively being forced to realize that we have this responsibility to slow down and recalibrate our relationship uh, with pace in just about every facet of our lives. And specifically in the case of slow stories, our digital lives included. And, you know, slow stories has always been rooted in this idea of exploring the quote, slow content movement in our social media heavy age, which I'm sure also had an effect on Sweet Bitter success as well. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering what the idea of slow content means to you, given all of your experiences and the way you've approached writing, whether it's novel, memoir, television, and what this idea just means to you right now. Mm, Slow content makes me think immediately of slow food, which is to to focus on process less 
than product in a way to or to at least allow the process to take its time and not keep trying to quicken it and condense it to just get to the product immediately. At least that's what I think of with food. I think what it means to me with content is twofold. Um, The first thing that comes up is physical books, physical books with long sentences and meandering stream of consciousness tangents and books that are translated that feel the language might feel bulky or it refers to another world. I mean, I'm thinking about that because I'm reading Shirley Hazard right now, an Australian writer who writes the two books that I've read of hers are dealing with um, mid 20th century Italy, which feels almost almost turn of the century in so far as um, the rules. It's almost like reading Edith Wharton in a way. And there is something about her sentences that reminds me of Henry James as well. Um, But reading without the next plot point in mind, reading purely for the pleasure of the language, that is slow content to me. And it's the same, it's the same value system when I was talking about slow food, which is process over product. And there's so much beautiful fiction and nonfiction that's being published right now. So I'm not trying to make a blanket statement at all, but I do find that books and television will mirror the attention span of the large, like the largest demographic, which is an incredibly short attention span. And you look at something like in television, Quibi, 10 minute episodes. Um, I can't stand it. I really, I can't. And I'm sure there are brilliant shows on Quibi, but the idea that storytelling is so disposable that we're going to continue to shorten the increments of time that we can pay attention or learn about characters or the amount of time that you're going to allow a scene to go on or the amount of space on a page you're you're going to allow a sentence to take up. I think that that to me, it's the death of the mind our ability to pay attention is really, I mean, it's William James, the psychologist who said, like, I'm going to butcher the quote, but basically like your world is created by what you pay attention to and how you pay attention. And I think when you treat things as disposable and forgettable and 10 minute increments, 60 second increments, you actually are limiting your brain. I think that will be the long-term consequence. 
um, you're limiting how much information you can hold. And I think often you're inhibiting deep thought. And so I think about books that might consider Baroque to people. Um, And as far as writing goes, I think about how there are so many writers who are able to write on the subway or write for 45 minutes in between during their lunch break or in between phone calls. And I'm really not like that. And I've always kind of beat myself up about it. My like sort of inability to integrate my writing with my regular life. But in order to write Stray, we moved to Europe. Um, We sublet our house. We (laughs) packed everything up. We found an apartment in Barcelona that was big enough for all of us and had an office for me. And it wasn't enough for me to say, I'm going to focus the next nine weeks on this book. I actually needed to remove myself completely by several time zones from the day-to-day distractions of my life. And so when people ask me how I wrote this book so quickly, which some people do, and that is a very short, sweet bitter, took two years for the first draft. Nine weeks is crazy. But I created a bubble for myself. I had the ability to do it, which is an extreme privilege, but I also took a lot of risk in doing it and we made it happen. And so that is also to me, slow content, even though we're talking about a nine week rush for a book, it was the sort of drastic change in the way I lived my life. That was the that made the slow space. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about Stray in just a minute. But as you were speaking, I also wanted to ask um, because I've noticed that at times content and storytelling can become synonymous, especially when creating or writing for mass consumption, as opposed to just making art or telling a story for the sake of telling it. Um, I'm wondering, as you've gone through your experiences over the last few years, if you think about consumption when you write or if you almost have to fight it. Don't, because I wrote Sweet Bitter in a vacuum of three jobs in graduate school and believing that no one would ever read it. And I didn't, with Stray, I do think that I, my best friend often says that I like can, I can black out when I'm working. And that has always been true. And so with Stray, I would write something that was very painful to write and then read it later and be so full of shame and think I could never publish this. This is not suitable for consumption, but I am able to get myself to write it. And eventually with help, and guidance, (laughs) um, and distance, I'm able to publish most of it. And so I don't really think about, about the appetite. I mean, even with social media, I don't think about, I don't think about what people want to consume or, or what is the 
most appetizing story, so to speak. I'm pretty strict about what I put on the internet, and it is 95% other people's work and poetry. And I don't think that there is a huge appetite for poetry in the world, but I do think that it's probably the highest good of social media. Yeah, I don't know if I fully agree with that, just because we recently published a special episode of Soul Stories called Soul Stories, which featured different contributions from people who read and shared stories that um, inspired them to slow down, but also really fed their soul. And a lot of what was uh, shared was poetry. So maybe we're kind of getting back to storytelling as an art rather than it being an act of performance that you know we see a lot of on social media. So just wanted to throw that perspective out there too. Yeah, and I love to hear that. And I obviously live in a, a, a bubble where everyone I know believes in poetry and believes in storytelling. But if you look at social media across the board, there is not an appetite for poetry the way there is an appetite for yeah. lifestyle photos, for skincare routines, for um, outfits of the day. Like there's the scale is completely different. And I think that's what I mean. Okay. Yeah. I would probably agree with that. Within this community and your community of listeners, I think everyone who would even tune in is interested in an authentic voice and is interested in, in meaning um, and ethics, which I mean, ethics in like a Aristotelian sense, like how to live how do we mm -hmm. live? And so those people are, I believe, are definitely interested in poetry and probably interested in skincare. You're allowed to be interested in both. I mean, that's the thing. And I think that's another really important element of slow stories that I want to get across. The same way you think about, you know, sustainability, you can still love to consume things, but it's also really important to be mindful about what you're consuming, how much and so on. So I just think that's a really important point. Um, and then in terms of being mindful, I want to make sure that um, being mindful of your time and talk a little bit more about Stray because I think all of this conversation has really provided a nice runway to share more about this story, which is your story. And so again, for maybe those who have a baseline understanding of the book, it'd be great if you could give us a refresher on the motivation for writing Stray in your own words. Yeah. Um, Stray is a memoir. It is about moving back home to California, where I grew up when I was 31 years old, and having a reckoning with my past, um, which mainly had to do with my parents, who were both addicts. And both imploded later in life. And this feeling that I have of being haunted by their sadness, or the feeling that I have of having inherited their damage. I think that when we tell addiction stories, we're often looking for a, 
a one-to-one comparison, which is my mom was an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, and my dad was a crystal meth addict, and I'm a crystal meth addict, which was not the case. But moving back here, slowing down from my life in New York, I was forced to examine how much I am like them and how I was reenacting their self-destruction in my own ways. And the story of Stray is about that reenaction, but also about moments of transcendence. I don't think that you're ever really healed from that kind of upbringing, but I do think that you can slowly learn to make different choices. And so that is what Stray is about. Not quite as uplifting as Sweet Bitter, but it has its moments. I mean, I don't think people look for uplifting so much as experience. I mean, that's my personal take, but you know, with the idea of slowing down in mind and looking inward, um, how much would you say your relationship with Pace changed in the way that you approached writing this story versus some of your other works? Well, I think that when I first started working on this book, which I didn't know that I was working on it yet, I had left New York after 12 years. It was the first time I hadn't worked in restaurants. And honestly, the first time I hadn't had multiple jobs in even longer. And I found myself in California, a place that I moved to because I thought it would be quiet. I thought it would be slower. And I had time, time to even make multiple meals a day in my home time to think and to walk. And what I realized is that in New York, I had kept my life so busy. And part of that was an avoidance of this space because what immediately rushed into that space were memories, things that I preferred not to think about, Um, stories I preferred not to continue, especially with my mother and father, it was so much easier in New York to create yourself and leave them out. Um, And I really, I never had to talk about them. I never had to deal with them. Neither one of them were in my life. And being back in California, I found I, I couldn't stop writing about them. So that's what sort of rushed in and filled up the space. And that Again, it took me years to admit that that I was writing a memoir, truly, like two and a half years before I was like, oh, I'm not writing this second novel that I haven't written a sentence of. I'm actually writing something personal and I have no idea how I'm going to survive it. But this feels the most urgent to me. But it was definitely the shift, the shift in pace that allowed the introspection necessary and the honesty. I love New York and I do, and I don't think that my experience is um, indicative of everyone's, but I just found it so easy to avoid 
certain parts of myself because I was so busy. Yeah, it's definitely easy to get swallowed up here in New York and kind of thinking about location and and pace. I'm wondering, did your process kind of inform the title of the book? Because when I think of Stray, it can either be something that somebody identifies as, like they're a stray, or is it more of an action, like moving towards something or away from something? I think it was both. I was drawn to it both as a noun and a verb. I do think that um, a person or animal in exile from their home, surviving off of the kindness of strangers, felt like a very apt description of how I found myself ever since my adolescence when my parents sort sort of stopped parenting me. Um, And then I also am fascinated by this idea of straying from a prescribed path. And I think akin to stray is to be lost. I mean, you've you strayed and oftentimes it's into the woods or into darkness. There's, um, there's also to stray from a relationship. And I think that over the course of my short life, I'm only 36. Those are the moments that I find growth is when I stray. Um, even if they are destructive, it's often when I'm in a transition into the next person that I'm bec- into what I'm becoming, stepping into the next person. Um, and I think all of us have that. We have a million lives that we're going to lead and versions of ourselves that we aren't ready to step into that we will be able to someday. And so, yeah, it felt like the perfect, perfect title. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel a little bit more found after writing this? Have you found something? No, I don't. I think I still struggle, not as badly as I did in 2015, which is the time period that the book was talking about, but I still struggle with boundaries and I still struggle with um, self-criticism and still struggle with depression and anxiety, to be honest. But I think, I think there's a way in which those moments in the book where I'm able to sort of turn from dark to light have made my current life possible, which is, it's not quite being found, but I do look around and I am a working writer. Never thought that would happen for me. I'm in a marriage that I have so much respect for and I treasure. I never thought that would happen for me. I am about to be the the mother of two And I am a mother of one, and I'm not like my own mother at all. Um, Never, ever, ever thought that would happen for me. If you've read straight, I mean, I almost failed out of high school. Everything about 
the life that I'm living right now is a miracle. And I do feel that my ability to do any of these things has something to do with the time that I'm writing about in Stray. With the little acts of kindness I was able to do for myself. And so, I it, yeah, found doesn't feel right to me, but I do feel like I did cross some threshold maybe. I think that's fair. I mean, we're always kind of losing things and finding other things about ourselves along the way. Is there a small section of Stray that you can read for us today that might give more context to some of these feelings? Yeah, this is small, but I think this will work. Um, It is from the last section of the book towards the end. Right after my divorce, the summer in between my two years of graduate school, I walked across Spain on the ancient pilgrimage trail. I ended up walking past Santiago de Compostela, the traditional finish. I walked to the Atlantic Ocean via the Costa de Morte, the coast of death, past Finisterre, mile one, once thought to be the end of the earth. I walked to Muxia, mile zero, to a church on the edge of a cliff, a site that's been mythic since the Celts, and thought it one of the most beautiful places I had ever seen. I could not believe that my feet had taken me there and was awed by the privilege of walking. My life had become smaller in those 46 days, my mind more manageable. But I did not feel absolved of my sins. I was not a better person. There's nothing falser to me than a story that ends with catharsis. Loving liars, addicts, or people who abuse your love is a common affliction, and we're mostly all the same. We have a gift for suffering silently. No one taught us how to trust the world, or that we could, so we trust no one. We've never developed a sense of self. There's no cure for the monster or the black hole, not falling in love or becoming a parent or making money or working harder. But boundaries help. It's through boundaries that we construct ourselves, say here is where you end and I begin. However, while boundaries are powerful, they're unfortunately not solid. They're made in the imagination and there are our inherent flaws in arming oneself for battle in our fantasies. What is shocking isn't that we've lived through the traumas of our lives, the miracles that we are still remotely permeable. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. How do you feel reading it out loud at this point in time? I'm not great at reading this book yet. It still feels really emotional to me. Um, That section feels safer than some of the other ones, but I read recently from a section about my mother and I, um, you know, the words get stuck in the throat a bit. Sometimes I can't believe I'm reading these things out loud. All in time. Is there a question that you hope people ask you after they read Stray? Mm. No. No, I don't. I don't really think 
like that. Um, I hope that people feel that they can ask questions or feel that we're in a conversation. I think that was a huge part of the impulse to write this book was to be in conversation with people who've had not necessarily similar upbringings, but have had similar feelings about self-worth or um, that they're broken. And whether it was because of their parents or abuse or codependent relationships that they're in now, I wanted to be in conversation with everyone because I really don't think I have any answers or that Stray has any answers. But it is someone saying, this is what happened to me. Is this, you know, what happened to you? And what about a question that you're going to be asking yourself in the coming months? What's coming? That's, that's, you know, I think considering the pandemic that we're in, a lot of my questions are, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? For various reasons. Um, But I also, as I sit with being pregnant and with this book coming out, I do wonder what's coming because if I know anything, it's that, and or if this time has proved anything, I think I already knew that life was uncertain and unpredictable, but what's coming is not what I think is coming except the baby. I think the baby's coming. The baby's probably going to come. Like she seems like a fact at this point. But the rest of it, I really have no idea what's next. Um, And this time during the pandemic has underlined that fact, I think, for all of us. Absolutely. And I think that idea in itself could lead to a whole other conversation that already is in so many contexts. But for this interview, I have one last question that I want to ask to close things out. And it's always sort of a nice way to wrap up these discussions. And that is, why do you think slowing down and embracing more stories will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I saw that question and I was, uh, there were so many directions that it could go. But I do think at the top of my mind right now is compassion. And I think that compassion depends on being able to pay attention and feel. And, you know, I was talking earlier about keeping myself so busy in New York. And I think a lot of us use the internet to distract ourselves from our, our lives, but by being forced to slow down, it's not comfortable necessarily to reckon with other people's suffering or, your own inconsistencies and flaws, but it does make you a better citizen in so far as your ability to have compassion for other people. Um, And so while I know everyone I know is suffering from some sort of depression right now, whether, and those are the people that are doing well, 
I think ultimately, oh, I have to believe that ultimately there is going to be a deeper sense of connection to each other that comes from this. That was Stephanie Danler, author of Stray and Sweet Bitter. You can follow and connect with Stephanie on social media at smdandler and order her new memoir, Stray, online wherever books are sold, though we recommend supporting your local or favorite indie bookstore if you can. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and this is a new chapter of Slow Stories. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's in store.